This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Steve Martirano. We hope you're joining us for each installment. What we do is speak to experts in the behavioral health field. The idea is to generate diverse and meaningful conversations on both substance abuse and mental health issues. So that's what it's all about here. That's that's our mission on Recovery Radio. T- today, we turn our attention uh, once again to the issue of suicide, the, the numbers of People who uh, have succumbed to suicide is are, are uh, alarming and large, far too large. And uh, that fact has uh, sort of galvanized our guest who has made it his uh, abiding mission to prevent suicide. And he comes from this uh, – to that position from, you know uh, – experience a lot of personal pain with regard to suicide, having lost family members. Alan Mednick is our guest. Alan is, among many, many other things, a uh, uh, board member of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in South Florida. He is a podcaster who has his own uh, podcast on the subject of uh, mental health issues and suicide. It's called Real Convo. We're going to find out all about that straight ahead. And he's got some specialized training in in uh, suicide prevention. So we're real pleased to have uh, have Alan with us on Recovery Radio. Alan, thanks for thanks for joining us. Oh, I appreciate. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's let's begin and uh, let people know uh, um, a little bit about you and uh, and how you come to uh, to this to this uh, position of dedicating yourself to suicide prevention. So I uh, and I appreciate you asking me that. Um, obviously, as a parent, you know I have kids. Uh, the last thing you you know you always worry about is you know them dying before you. And there's things that happen you know that will go on. But one of the things that we never realize is them taking their own life. And that's what happened with me. My daughter Raven, at 19 years old, uh, seven years ago took her life at college and that started my basic journey into obviously the family of people that have lost people loved ones by uh, suicide um so for the first year i basically what i tell people is i basically just cried my eyes out didn't do anything isolated myself and it was it wasn't healthy for me uh, I started going to counseling, and I started counseling people basically just doing the same thing I did, but they've been, you know, seven years out from their child that passed, and I just saw I couldn't live like that, so I started figuring out ways that I could start helping, and I started volunteering for organizations such as the AFSP, which is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and uh, other organizations. I was up in Massachusetts, so it was a crisis hotline up there called Samaritans, and I joined the board of uh, um, directors for them. Uh, Again, you lose your child by suicide, you never think it's gonna happen again, and then four years later, I lost my niece, Ayla, to suicide. Uh, Coincidentally, she was also 19. Uh, You know, obviously it's a struggle, and the more that we went on, the more I saw uh, more people that were struggling and it included my son Michael and my Mike, my son Michael who is now 17 uh, he's been battling anxiety and depression for the last I believe it's five years and he was also in an inpatient and an outpatient facility 
so that basically began my uh, my path into trying to help other people. And I just, uh, if I could mention one other thing with that, the thing that really got me really driven into helping people was, uh, I remember I was on the way to my niece Ayla's uh, funeral and I got a call from a friend and the friend basically told me, I'm sorry for your loss. I can remember when I was, uh, I forget how old he was, but he said his brother died by suicide when he was 18. And that kind of shocked me because I knew this guy for about seven, eight years. He was a selectman in the town, uh, a politician, and no one ever knew. So at that point, I knew I had to start speaking up because the only way that this was going to get helped was for people to start speaking up. Yeah. Well, it's a a devastating story that, uh, you know, one family should... uh encounter this so very often it's such a great cost but i want to get back up to this this notion of people not talking about it and you're, you're deciding that people needed to talk about this that has a that has a something to do with the stigma that still attaches itself to suicide there is there is shame in the survivors of the family members correct there is and it goes back to several things now i do want to also mention something else and this is One of the things I compared suicide to, if you recall back in the 80s when AIDS came out, AIDS was a shameful thing. Uh, I remember, you know, working and, you know, you're thinking that if you walk past somebody that had AIDS, if they breathed on you, you would catch it. Right, right, right. So there was a, a, yeah, there was a lot of stigma behind that. The only way that we defeated AIDS, well, I don't just shouldn't say defeat, but, you know, we got it to a point where it is. And I just heard a stat today that stunned me. AIDS was taken off the the uh, critical list, and now it's basically on the list, like, if you have asthma. Uh, so we've come a long way with AIDS. It's been amazing. And the only way that happened was because everybody talked about it. You have live, you had live AIDS. Elton John came out. All these celebrities. And Max Johnson at HIV, and all of a sudden it was okay. You you could live a normal life, and you were a human. So that's where we are with suicide now. We gotta get to that point where you say, you know, a mental health issue, it's okay to have a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you would like, I, I mean, this is gonna be difficult for some people to get their head around, because you, you sound like you're talking you're talking about the need for people to address suicide as they as a as a mental health issue for sure but for us to consider it the same way we would other mental health issues for instance schizophrenia or deep depression or anything else that's that's affecting our our mental health as a disease is that what you're saying about suicide that it, that it that it should be thought of that way Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought the word disease. It it is a disease. It's an illness. It's the same thing as if you have a heart attack. The same thing if you have a stroke. There's no difference because it's not like you want to have a mental health issue. It's It's a condition that's in the brain and it's a research and it's proven fact that that it's nothing that it's just like I said, like having a heart attack. Um, but it could be helped. And that's the thing that we're working for. And there's also research showing that suicide is preventable. And by the awareness and taking care and going to get help, it can be prevented. And just like, you know, a heart attack is Mm -hmm. that you go and Mm -hmm. 
you have a heart attack, you go to the doctor, you get medication, you take care of everything, and then you could be fine. Right. There are, beha- with mental there, health. There, there are behaviors that you, you, you need to address and change, and then you're at less risk for that kind of a problem. I want to get into the research that we're finding out because it's there's some startling stuff. When people hear you say, well, suicide's a disease, uh, you know what the reaction is uh, from the outside. The outside is nobody gives themselves the knee-jerk reactions. Well, nobody gives themselves a disease. Um, you know, you get a heart right. attack. But in fact, that's wrong, and we'll find out when we talk about the research straight ahead. But let's let's back right. up to the stigma that still attaches itself and the pain of family members. Your daughter at 19 away at college um, is a suicide victim. Were you, how, right. were you blindsided by that? Tell, tell me what your state of mind was before, before the tragedy. Well, as I mentioned, I mean, you know, I hear a lot of people saying when they, my son's 17, he's going to be getting his license. What's the first thing that goes through your head? You're worried about him getting in a car accident. There are things that you worry about when your kid's getting hurt doing this. You never, ever think about your kid taking their life. And that's, that's just something that we never, you know, again, when we were younger, and I remember my, you know, if you went through something, you were upset about something, you're depressed, you know, basically my dad would say, suck it up, you know, you'll get over it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not the same these days, you know, anxiety, depression, there are a lot of different causes why people are, um, you know, are in a situation where they need help. And that's what we need to do. So there are always signs that come across this. And I look back at my daughter and I look through her Facebook stuff and there were signs. But again, at that time, I wasn't educated enough to understand Mm -hmm. what was going on. Mm -hmm. And you never think that something like this would happen. uh, Your daughter was not being uh, treated in any way prior to the suicide for any mental health issues? She actually was. She actually was. And, you know, this is something that I don't mention a lot because, again, it's a stigma behind it. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things, so my daughter was being treated for PTSD and she was bipolar. There are a couple of issues. First of all, the PTSD was that she was raped twice when she was younger. And that's something that I don't talk about. And you mentioned I have a radio show. I mentioned that one day on the radio show and it kind of like shocked me that I said it. And again, it's something that I'm not, you know, it's nothing that you could be, you should be embarrassed about because mm-hmm. she had no control over mm-hmm. it. And it was something horrible that happened to her. But again, you, you're talking about stigma and we got to get this out and talk openly about it. Uh, so she, she, you know, had that PTSD from that. She was bipolar. And when she passed away, we got a list of all the medication that she was on. The medication that she was on was, probably the strongest medication you could get. That's a whole different topic that we could go into at another time because um, medication, a lot of times, can do as much good as much bad. Mm-hmm. So, But that's a topic that could take a whole show itself. Alan, uh, Alan Mednick is our guest. Alan is, uh, among many other uh, duties and responsibilities, a board member of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the South... Uh, it's the Southeast Florida chapter. He's also a podcaster. Yes, that's and he's a trained, um, I'd say, therapist or helper with regard to preventing suicide. We're going to find out about that training and maybe pick up a few, or obviously pick up a few 
very important pointers. We're talking about suicide on Recovery Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Our guest on the telephone from uh, Florida is uh, Alan uh, Bednick. Alan has uh, dedicated his life to helping others who are um, interested in uh, preventing suicide. He's a board member of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They've been on the program in the past, and uh, he has his own podcast, which can be heard on the iHeart Radio Network, uh, Real Convo. It's also broadcast and what's the station that it's broadcast in in, in uh, Florida, Alan? It's WJNO. There you go. Uh, I want to talk to you about that about that as well. I know you're you're new at the podcasting thing. Well, let's get let's get in, <laughs> let's get into some of the things uh, you've uh, trained yourself or had yourself trained in order to be um, a, you know even better at suicide prevention. You, you um, I've been reading that you took some sort of safe talk training. What's safe talk training about? So there's safe talk training, which is basically a, uh, it's an awareness training. So what we do is we look and see anybody that might be depressed or have any kind of be down. And there's a way of talking to them to understand if it really is a concern that they might be suicidal or it might just be having a bad day. So, we go in and we talk to them and if we do get to a point where we feel they are suicidal is training on how to talk and then also how to get them help. Uh, it's not about doing what we call an intervention. So I'm not going to sit there and try to talk them out of, you know, suicide. I'm going to be there to make sure that they're safe and get them to somebody that could help them at that point. So that's basically what the training is. And for the safe talk, I am what's called, I am a trainer for that. So I do, um, which I'm excited about this coming Monday, if you don't mind me mentioning, I'm going to be, I was called by the United States Southern Command, which is the military base in Doral. And I'm going to be going on the military base to train our, our military on Monday, which is really exciting for me to help out there. Can I, can I, get, you to, can I get you to back up for one second about, uh, when, when you talk about you, you, the safe talk training has to do with Less to do with talking someone out of uh, uh, suicide. What, why? Why would that be the case? Wouldn't that be the first thing someone would want to do? No, because again, it takes a certain way of doing it. You want to make sure somebody is safe. That's the most important thing, and that's why we try to recognize an awareness on the on the subject of, the, of uh, suicide. Once you get to that point, it, there's an extra training that you have to go through to actually do what's called an intervention. And there's a special way to talk to people on that on in, in that realm. Uh, tell us safe about safe talk is is just to make sure. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You finish your thought. No, I was just to say what safe talk is is just to make sure to be aware to recognize it, and then to get somebody to a place that they're safe. I mean, I hate to use expressions like this, but it sounds like that that's talking them off the ledge part of the proceedings. Is that is that what it is? You're actually not even doing that. You're actually just making sure that they're in a safe. So basically, once they admit that they are thinking of suicide, you stay with them until you can get them help, whether it's you call 911, depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. If you, you would be asking them, you know, who is a who is somebody you're comfortable with? Do you have a parent? Do you have a sister? You know, who's somebody that you're comfortable with that we could call? 
and then you would call that person. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. If you have, for instance, I'm go, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. If you have, for instance, if you have a kid that's at school and you're at work, obviously you can't get there. Mm-hmm. What you would want to do is not let them off the phone, make sure they're on the phone and make and then try to call their counselor at school or somebody at school. But you wouldn't get off the phone with them at all until they're with somebody safe. Yeah. So, so that's basically what it is. Yeah. So it's uh, clearly it's it's the beginning of a of a longer process than immediately saying, please don't do this. Don't do this. You know, um, you, you got to bring somebody to a safer place first, psychologically, physically as well, but certainly psychologically so that you can set up this process. Right. Now, I'm curious about intervening. In, in a in a situation like this, I mean, we're familiar, I think, with the substance abuse uh, interventions, um, if only from that unfortunate television program. What is an intervention in a su- in, the, in the context of suicide look like? So it, again, it's now. I just want to mention, I am not a therapist. I don't have a degree in psychology. I've taken courses on how to help people, which for me, it's not a long term intervention so if i notice somebody is depressed and i and i come to the realization that they are suicidal i'm at that moment just trying to talk them out of the thought of the ideation um, of, of the thought of suicide so and i have and i have done that and it does help people what you basically want to do is create space and the more space you could create time from their thought, the less likely they will take their life. And that's basically what you want to do. You got to remember, so you got to understand, people that are suicidal, you, the human nature does not want to take your life. The will to live is much stronger than the will to die. And that's why it's not one instance that creates somebody to want to take their life. So if you lose your job, you're not going to go and take your life. If you, you know, have marital trouble, financial trouble, you're not going to take your life. But when everything starts piling up and the stress gets to be so much and there's a pain that happens and that pain is a lot stronger sometimes. Well, it's a lot stronger. Just think about the, the most physical pain you've ever been in and times that by 10 or 100. Emotional pain is a lot stronger. So what we're trying to do is just create, relieve that pain. So what we basically do is it's basically the same thing as safe talk where we start off trying to recognize what's going on. But once we get that admitting that they are suicidal, at that point we go into our intervention. And most of the intervention is just listening. People want to be heard. And that's, that's what you find a lot. People feel like they're alone that no one can understand what's going on inside their head. So, so what we try to do is just, yeah, the intro, I, I, I gotta, we gotta break here now, but it, it's, it's clear yeah. that what, what you're doing is just creating some space in between the person's thought that, that they're, they're going, they're going to, uh, kill themselves and, and the time when they do that, just a, a pause as it were, um, to right. talk, to talk, and and think about that. It's fascinating stuff. Al, Alan Mednick is our guest. Uh, he's he's talking about the the, the kind of layperson training he had, and uh, it's worth considering because this kind of training would be available to anybody. 
uh, and his role as a uh, board member of the American uh, Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We have more with Alan Straight Ahead on Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano with you. You know, we're here talking about uh, mental health issues. We have been focusing on suicide today and prevention in particular with our guest, Alan Mednick. Alan is a board member of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and he's been taking us through not only his personal history with his family and uh, their uh, relationship with suicide, but also the, the mission he's set for himself now going on over seven years in in training himself and helping others talk about suicide and, more importantly, how to prevent it, because it is preventable. Uh, Before we leave this issue of uh, the safe training and intervention with regard to dealing with uh, suicide, uh, I just want to make the point that, and see if you agree, that techniques that you described uh, are more important now than ever, because, look, the truth of the matter is, is it's never been easier to take one's life than it is right now. Um, Is that also one of the reasons it's so very important to get in there and create that safe space for people so they have time to reflect upon the the choices they're making? Yeah, absolutely. Again, as I mentioned, the more time that we could create, the better off somebody will be. And that's basically what we do with these type of trainings. I do want to just mention one thing. in the beginning, when we start talking to somebody to find out if they are uh, in crisis, mm-hmm. if they are suicidal, one of the things we do is, I mean, basically you go up and you say, are you okay? And they'll say, yeah, I'm okay. You know, yes, um, you know, I, I, I know you or I've seen you. You look like something's wrong. You know, one of the things that we say is if, you know, people that are going through losing a job, whatever it is, sometimes they think of suicide. Are you thinking of suicide? Now, it's important to say the word suicide. And people think that if you say that word, it's going to make people think more to take their lives. And it's not. Again, I want to get back to the point I said before. People are not influenced that easily. But if you say that word suicide, I remember saying it the first time, you get a lump in your throat. It becomes reality. And that's what happens with people. So... That's an important part of the process. Yeah, there there are so there are so many um, stereotypical reactions and uh, attitudes towards this problem that we've got to get a better handle on. That 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 the one you just mentioned uh, is one of the older ones. That oh my goodness, if you think your kid may be having suicidal thoughts, don't ever mention it because it'll, you know, which is nonsense. You should talk about it the minute it's a problem, the minute you think it might be a problem, you should talk about it. We're going to get a little bit deeper into the notion of how we talk about this uh, disease anyway, uh, straight ahead with our guests. But uh, before we leave the issue of training and safe talk and the the, uh, suicide intervention skills training, where can people who might be interested, I mean, this seems to be you know, something like learning how to give, uh, do CPR or something. Where do people get this kind of training? You know, I love that con- that analogy because it is like CPR. So, what? And it's mental health CPR, and we call it mental health first aid. So basically, you could go to a couple places. The, the training that I got is from an organization called Living Works, and you could just go to their website and look for uh, a class. Uh, for either safe talk or assist, they have other ones too. 
there are a couple of other programs. Uh, I think there's an organization uh, it's called Algae, but you can go to their website, uh, or you could go to the AFSP, uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You go to your local chapter. We uh, sponsor them sometimes. We always know when they're coming up, and they're all over the country. So those are mainly the places they can go. I'm sure NAMI probably has it, and there are probably other mental health organizations in your uh, community that will know about these programs, too. And these trainings, uh, there's no cost to this, for these trainings, correct? Actually, there is a cost. To oh, there it. is? Yeah. Uh, oh, again, yeah. As, a, yeah, as a board member, uh, the AFSP paid for me, but, you know, I, so I'm not sure how much it costs, but there are, yeah, there is a cost for it. You, uh, you actually, I should take that. I should take that back. I apologize. If for becoming a trainer, there's a cost for the safe talk. There is no talk. There is no cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's basically depending on the organization. They might charge five dollars just for the book or something, but there is no cost for that. Yeah, I would. I, I would recommend uh, anybody who wants more information about a wide range of topics concerning suicide. I mentioned this in an, in a previous program. If you just check out the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's website, wherever you're listening to this program, you're going to find a very rich resource of information. It's a terrific site. There's chapter, I think there are chapters now in every state, so I'm sure you'll be able to find the site. Uh, and there's, a, there's just a load of information on, on that group's uh, website with regard to all this. One of the other things that the AFSP has been in the forefront of, Alan, and I know you're aware of this, is that they um, they they sponsor a lot of research in this area of, of uh, suicide. They're not just taking a position and going blindly uh, forward. They're, they're looking for, for uh, real information. Now, I know the mission of uh, AFSP is to, well, you tell us, it's to reduce suicide by a certain number. What is that number? Right. So we're looking it's uh, to reduce suicide by 20% by the year 2025. And again, it's simply called Project 2025. Um, we, you know, it, it's pretty interesting. First of all, you mentioned, you know, we do a lot of research. We are the largest uh, private researcher in the country for suicide. So the amount of information that we gather has been unbelievable over the last couple of years. Um, you know, there are a couple of things that we're focusing on now from that research. And the next couple of years, we're going to be looking at uh, large healthcare systems, emergency departments, firearm-owning communities, and correctional facilities. And we think through those areas, we could really decrease the suicide rates tremendously. Can you can you uh, can you tell us? A little, I mean, I know I'm sure some of this uh, some of this uh, research is in the preliminary stages, but are there, is there anything that you guys are looking at that um, that you might be able to share with us now? I'm I'm thinking about in particular because this has come up before. Your your, um, your group's research has demonstrated that it's important with regard to how the media covers the issue of suicide and the language that they use. Can, can you can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? So that's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. So there's a couple of things that through research we found. First of all, there's a word that everybody says, which is commit suicide. And we found through research that, we, and that's one of the stigmas we're trying to change by taking that word commit out of the language. And the reason why is because commit is a, it means a crime. And up to like the 70s, 
it was actually in the books, a crime in most, I think in probably every place in the country, to, if you tried to take your life, you could go to jail, which is, which is ridiculous. So we found over the last, and this is only over the last couple of years, that we've shown that taking that word out of the language will help reduce the stigma and help reduce suicide. So those are some of the things that we've been finding out that make a big difference. The other, the, the other interesting fact, and I'm not sure who was the one that did the research on this, but there was a research done by uh, uh, someone that died by suicide in, I think it was like Austria or somewhere over there. I'm not gonna basically go over how they were trying to do it, but the news media reported it and when they reported, they gave pretty descriptive view on how it happened. And they found that the suicide rate increased dramatically the same way that this person did it. Now, in contrary, when Kurt Cobain passed away, the media portrayed it in a different way. And they looked at it as the legacy of his life. They didn't talk about his passing. They talked about what great inspiration he was to so many people and believe it or not in that community the suicide rate went down mm -hmm. so a lot of research proves that the way the media reports and how we talk about it really can affect the the suicide rate yeah I, well, I'm, I'm certain that that's true but i wonder i'll be the devil's advocate here how you can inform and educate the public about the suicide while at the same time making sure they they don't um, speak about it in an alarmist way. Because at the end of the day, Alan, it's an alarming idea that we might lose someone to it suicide. Is. It's it, That's a tough line you guys have to travel, but it's an important one, right? It's extremely important. It's the same. I'll go back to AIDS. It's the same way we changed everybody's mind on AIDS. Again, in AIDS, it was a death sentence. You got, you know, someone contracted AIDS or HIV, and you just basically wrote them off then. We changed that through the media. And, and you got to remember, back then, AIDS was, in, AIDS was in the news every single day. And that's what we're trying to change here. We talk about the media. Mm -hmm. We got to get the media to start reporting on it more, too, to help out in a positive way. Not just when someone passes away that's famous. So those are very important things. Um, aspects to how we can change the stigma. Yeah, it must be very and save lives. It must be very frustrating to see them to see them make the same uh, mistakes over and over again. And I'm sure it's well well intended. This notion of no longer using the words commit to talk about the act of suicide is is pretty interesting. It's going to be a little difficult for some people to to get their their heads around. You said it's no longer a crime. It, it used to be against the. If I understand you correctly, you used to be against the law to take your own life or to try to take your own life. Yes. That's not the case anywhere anymore? Yes. No. Uh, no, not in this country. In other countries, maybe, but not in this country. Now, the thing about it also is you mentioned about the media and changing the aspects. There is actually, uh, and I forget the media organization, maybe you could help me with it, but the one that the, the media follows the guidelines through, mm -hmm. they actually have it in their guidelines how to report on suicide and the words you use and don't use and the american foundation suicide prevention has that on their website too we basically helped them with that so you know again and there was even instances 
last year when I saw that the media did say those words and I've written emails to them and to their, um, to commend them on what they did. They actually called me up and interviewed me on the reason why you don't use those words. Yeah, and I, I know and it they is. did a great job. Uh, yeah, somebody in the media, when it, when it was first brought to my attention that, you know, it would be helpful if you didn't, they were speaking to me directly. If you didn't use these phrases or uh, words or phrases, anybody with a half a brain would recognize that. That's thanks. That's that's a that's a good heads up, and I appreciate it. Alan uh, Bednick is our guest. We have more with Alan. We're going to talk to you a little bit about if you're in this uh, Florida area over this weekend. Uh, in fact, Sunday there's uh, an event going on, and Alan will tell us about his involvement in that uh, suicide prevention. That's a topic here on Recovery Radio. We have more. Don't go away. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Recovery Radio. Steve Mortarano with you. It's been a fascinating, as it always is, uh, discussion when suicide is the, the topic in a mental health context. And we certainly want to thank uh, Alan uh, Mendick for his expertise and, and his experience in the area of suicide prevention. Uh, and I'm going to get some details on where you can actually meet Alan. He's going to be involved in a, um event that's uh, taking place in Florida. We'll find out more about that. In fact, the event will be tomorrow on Sunday. So uh, Alan will tell us about that. Alan, before we go, uh, among the things I know you wanted to talk about with regard to suicide and suicide prevention is the what shape we are in as a society with regard to our uh, our medical establishment, hospitals, emergency so- rooms, primary uh, care physicians. How well are they being trained? to look out for and help prevent suicide. So let me just start off by saying this. Suicide prevention is still relatively new in the research area. Uh, We just had, when we were in Denver, they had mentioned something which kind of shocked me. And I forget which association, but I think it was the American Cancer Association. It took them 80 years before they started reducing the rate, Mm -hmm. before the, the rate started reducing for suicide. I mean, not for suicide, for cancer. Um, we're at the same thing, you know, for suicide. So, you know, there's a lot of research that has to go out there and people have to get trained just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you understand um, mental health or suicide. Uh, what I do want to say is, though, that, you know, the stat is 83% of people that go to their primary care doctor at least once a year, you know, people that die by uh, suicide, 45% of people that go to their doctor, excuse me, let me repeat that, 45% of people that die by suicide have been to their doctor within one month. Um, You know, and then also there's another stat for emergency rooms, uh, people that die by suicide, 39% of them have been seen in an emergency emergency department for non-suicidal complaints. Sure. You know, what what does that mean? That's one of the areas that we're trying to to work on to get the hospitals and doctors to do more follow-ups, basically, uh, to recognize more symptoms, possibly. Yeah, you know what I'm and struck. This is a big. Sh- yeah, no, I'm struck I'm by sorry, this. Guys. I'm struck by the similarities when you talk about emergency care, um, emergency room care, and primary care physicians' uh, involvement in this. I'm struck by the um, similarities between where those two things were in the medical establishment with regard to substance abuse. They, they weren't particularly uh, being trained well with regard to taking care of substance abuse, uh, primary care physicians. You know, you go to your primary care physician because you've got a fever or a cold or, you know, an ache or a pain. You don't normally go there because you, you have suicidal ideas. That's all got to change. People got to people got to be trained to look for this stuff, Correct. 
They absolutely do. And again, that's another area that we're looking into. That's a fo- big focus of ours right now is opioids uh, with, with suicide also. Again, like I said before, I don't care if it's substance abuse, overdose and suicide, you know, eating disorder. It's all mental health. It's all the same category. So I lump it all together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely, it's got to be more concerning of pe- what, um, what doctors are given their people. You know, there's another one with physical help. People with um, physical pain, you know, again, back pain, any type right. of pain, doctors might be given prescriptions and they got to be careful. So, right. so you know, right. we got to oversee everything a little more careful. Tell us about some of the work that you are involved in, in uh, particularly with regard to the event that's taking place in Florida on uh, Sunday. Tell us what that's about, what, so, what you're trying to do. Yeah, so... Uh, we're trying to raise money for an organization called 211. Now, 211 is the crisis hotline here in Florida. 211 is nationwide number. However, it's not in every area. And each 211 is a separate entity, basically. Uh, but they handle an amazing amount of calls, especially with the crisis hotline. And one of the other things, the national hotline, the 1-800-273-TALK number, does get transferred to the local 211s also. So that those two one, local 211s take those national hotline calls. The problem is, is there's no funding that's being given to 211 to help with all this. For instance, the national hotline, I think they only get $2,000, the local 211, for, uh, for answering all those calls. So what we decided to do, a few of us, is get together and try to put a fundraiser together for them, which is going to happen this Sunday. And I got to tell you, the retreat has been amazing in, you know, taking the lead on this and just putting it all together. And it's basically a woman's uh, dare to self-care fair. Uh, basically, uh, what we're going to have is, uh, if you ever heard of Krav Maga? The uh, self-defense thing? Yeah, it's Israeli martial arts. Oh, basically. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I have. I watched, uh, the, I watched that show on television. <laughs> Yeah, so a good friend of mine uh, who was one of the ones that came up with this idea, uh, Mark Astor, who's an attorney, uh, he's a substance abuse, uh, mental health and eating disorder attorney. Uh, he also is a, um, a Krav Maga instructor. So he's going to be there giving lessons. We also have yoga and I think a couple of other uh, types of fitness going to be there and I think it's like a $25 cost to, to take one of these classes and 100% of those donations are going to be going to 211 to help out. Again, for people so who are in your, event. again, for people who are in your area, where exactly will it be and what hours? Oh, yes. That would be important. It would be helpful, yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be <laughs> so it's going to be uh, this uh, Sunday at the Wellington Mall and it's going to be from 1 to 4 p.m. Well, there you go. Uh, a great chance to learn some skills and uh, help the cause. Uh, Alan uh, Mendick, those of you who are interested in hearing more of Alan's work, he has, as I said, the podcast. It's called Real Convo. Is that right? Real, was it? Real? Yes, it is. Yeah, Real Convo. Uh, the iHeart yeah. uh, Media app will, uh, or wherever you um, get your finer podcasts. Alan, thanks so much for joining us on Recovery Radio. It was great stuff. We appreciate it. 
I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for your great work. Thank you. And uh, thank you all for uh, joining us on Recovery Radio. It's brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health. We remind you that uh, if you you want more information or anybody you know in your family or your life is in need of help 24-7, they're there to give you the answers and help you out. 855-859-8810. That's Retreat Behavioral Health 855-859-8810. Bye for now. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.